Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Ever since the Time Person of the Year award came out, Eddie Garrison's been bopping this stuff all over the office. It gets a little bit nauseating, right? Which is particularly impressive because Eddie himself claims that he doesn't need to know anything about 1989 because he wasn't alive yet. Isn't that right, Eddie? Never once said that, and I only play Taylor Swift for our next guest because he loves Taylor Swift. Big fan. Scott Agnes, do you have your tickets lined up for when Taylor Swift comes to Indianapolis? Jake, I do not. Uh, I, like most people in Indianapolis, did not even get a code. Okay. Well, you know, they've got the secondary market. They do. Uh, That would take uh, a little bit extra resources, and I'm not quite (laughs) willing to hit that, really stretch that much. Now, meanwhile, though, you are in Vegas, right? I am, absolutely. Well, listen, all you got to do, it's easy. I used to say all the time, that the roulette table, the way to do it was you just go, you take some chips, and you put it right there on number 31, and it would always hit within five spins every single time, right? I guess, actually, I need to, to shift away and start incorporating other numbers other than 31 to be my good luck charm, correct? Sure sounds like it. Maybe zero right there, zero black. I mean, seriously, right? Let, let's begin with this. Um, Scott, I, first question before we get to the game and just the Pacers and the Lakers and the in-season tournament and all of that. I am curious of this. The atmosphere at T-Mobile Arena was what? And the percentage of fan breakdown, and by that I mean Pacer fans, Bucks fans, and just people in general that were there because it was an event, breaks down how? Yeah, so I will say the turnout of fans for the first game was better than I was expecting. I mean, remember, out here was a 2.13 Pacific time start, so middle of the day. Um, and I would estimate it was over 90% full um, once you got it going into the game. It started at probably 80% um, and stretched out to 90%. In terms of breakdown of fans, that's going to be very difficult. I think the, there were more – it sounded like there were more Bucks fans than Pacer fans. The environment in terms of, like, high stakes and how – basically all you had was fans reacting to big moments. Dame hits a big shot. Tyrese has a step back they have not seen before. Outside of that, it was just constant music playing in the arena. Um, And much like at Laker games, for example, it was theater lighting. So you couldn't see past the benches. That's that's in large part why I couldn't provide a real breakdown of how many Pacer fans and and such. Scott, when you look at their three-point shooting percentage last night, I had said this in our opening segment that if I would have just seen that and then been asked what happened – I would have thought they did not win. When you look at reasons why they were able to still not only stay afloat, but ultimately wind up winning by nine against Milwaukee with how much they struggled from beyond the arc, what would you point to? Is it their pace? Is it the unselfishness in the passing? Of course, Tyrese Halliburton being the straw that stirs the drink. Where's the biggest area in terms of, well, yeah, they didn't shoot particularly well from beyond the arc, but it didn't matter because of this. Yeah, so what I thought it was, was they did enough to stay around, not get deep in a hole or anything like that. 
And so then you go into that fourth quarter, you're only down by three, and here's where it changed. Rebounding and second-chance opportunities. This team's not good at rebounding. Hasn't probably been on my entire decade-plus on the beat. They just have never been uh, good at rebounding. But this team had eight offensive rebounds, leading to 13 second-chance points. And I go back to that big stretch where we all remember Tyrese's step back that kind of sealed the win. What happened on the two previous possessions? Miss, follow-up, tip-in. Miss, follow-up, dunk. So right there, back-to-back second-chance opportunities. And Tyrese's was after a miss as well. That's what changed the game. Scott, when you look at the way the Pacers have played, and it's going to sound like an odd question, but it does feel like with these in-season tournament games, maybe it's because of the the attention that is necessary to beat. You know, you got to be pretty intense to beat Milwaukee and to beat Boston. It's different than playing against Detroit and, you know, whatever else. Are they just simply extra incentivized for these games or are we noticing the elevation of play that is there anyway, but it seems now magnified because these games, quote-unquote, mean something? No, I, I think everybody is upping their level here. You can feel the tension, even kind of in pregame interviews and things like that. Like These feel different, which, by the way, is exactly the point in what Adam Silver is wanting in this new concept that has been in discussion for more than 10 years, and they finally – kind of got it off the ground this year. Um, a lot of it kind of copying what, what's happening with soccer, what has happened with soccer overseas. I mean, all the way down to a, an entirely different trophy, you know, a walk-in with a red carpet on the way in. But no, Jake, I think absolutely the, the, the stakes are felt. The money is felt. I mean, that's one of the things I'm going to write about today is, yes, there's a game and a championship on the line, but part of what has made this so special is you throw competitive dudes out there who want to win regardless, and now there's a, 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 a sweetener in the pot in $500,000 now on the line. And, yeah, that may not mean as much to a guy like Miles Turner who makes $20 million per year. Think about Ben Shepard, who's you know a first-year guy um, and, and gets the same pot of money regardless. And even better, think about the two-way guys who aren't really contributing right now on the court, they get half a stake. So they'll get roughly half of that, 250000 So all of that has contributed to making each of these games feel more important. And in turn, guys are treating them differently, where otherwise these December games, we wouldn't even be talking about totally. right now. Scott, let me ask you this. Scott Agnes, by the way, Fieldhouse Files, is our guest. He's out in Las Vegas, Pacers and Lakers, tomorrow night from – Las Vegas for the in-season tournament championship. We'll get you information, by the way, on how you can watch that, along with other Pacer fans at Gamebridge Fieldhouse. Um, Scott, do you remember when they first announced, this is a couple of years ago, you probably would know the year off the top of your head, when they first announced they were going to do the Hickory jerseys. Do you remember that? I do, yeah. That Every, was about seven years ago. Everybody was all in, right? It's like, this is awesome. You know, Bill Simmons is like, I got to get one. Everybody's in, right? People buying T-shirts, hats, the whole deal. And it was cool. I, I Don't get me wrong. It was cool. By like year three, people are like, uh, are we still doing this? Really? Uh, any chance that that happens with this in-season tournament? Right now, everybody's all bought in and fans love it. But will water find its level? I, I think it's only going to get a little bit better um, because the number one thing in all this that it's accomplishing is making these December games relevant and, and even bigger, I guess, 
is part of the everyday national conversation. For example, I don't even know what happened in the Thursday night football game last night. Ordinarily, that would dominate everything in all of our lives, seemingly, in the sports world, right? Given I'm out here in Vegas where NBA is uh, you know, totally in control. But that's, that's part of the game here. Is can they take back some territory? Can they make some of these early season games more relevant before the trade deadline? I mean, there's, there's a, probably a portion of the, this listening audience that doesn't think the NBA season really gets started in earnest until after football, right around the All-Star break there in mid-February. So this is accomplishing a lot, I think, to change that. And you talk to the players um, about their feelings towards it, and they'll even admit they're surprised that it has taken off as quickly as it did. It's usually it might take two or three years. And really, outside of the, the courts, which I think are awful and need to be corrected, um, you, can, you can have them stand out without having them be an eyesore. Uh, outside of the courts, I think this has been an overwhelming success. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Scott, have you seen the movie Big Daddy with Adam Sandler? Yes, I actually okay. have. There, there's yeah. a scene in the movie, uh, they're going to get breakfast at McDonald's, and the little kid that, that Adam Sandler is carrying um, wets himself, and, and like, you know, all over Adam Sandler's sweatshirt and all over the kid's leg. I don't know if you recall that scene. Um, but that was last night's Thursday night football with the Pittsburgh Steelers. So there you go. There's your. There's exactly what happened last night in Thursday night football. You're all caught up. At, last night, the Patriots were the big daddy, and the little kid that wet himself was the Pittsburgh Steelers. Unfortunately, on the other side, in the second game, which I wasn't able to watch because I was writing, the Lakers seemingly did that to the Pelicans in the second <laughs> half at one by hey, Zion Williamson said that he didn't th- that he regretted and apologized for the fact that he just didn't have enough energy. No excuse for that one, man. They're out here for two days and and have nothing to do but rest, relax, and get prepared for that game. But it's Vegas, man. Well, I mean, is it really? Can you do you relax in Vegas? I guess you can go to the pools, right? What's the temperature out there right now? Uh, probably uh, low sixties. Yeah, see, so I, you know, I guess you know you're not hanging around the pools. Maybe the the spa area. I don't know. Might be, might be late nights at the buffet for Zion, though. You know what I mean? <laughs> you never know. Yeah, no, it was, and it was funny in his question. I, I go back to a couple of days ago, Jake, when he was t- every player uh, that went to the podium was basically kind of asked, "How would you treat the championship? Like how?" It, it, you know, what is too much maybe to celebrate this championship? Do you hang a banner in your arena, stuff like that? Well, Zion and, and Brandon Ingram were kind of asked about it, and Zion got the biggest, boyish, childish face, uh, or smile on his face, rather, where he, he was clearly thinking about going out and partying, and his face said it all. So th- there you go. Scott Agnes of Fieldhouse Files is our guest. Scott, we highlighted it yesterday, but since you were out there, I want to get your perspective on it. How big, we know how big he was defensively against Boston, but how big defensively was Aaron Neesmith in this game, especially late drawing that matchup against Damian Lillard very often? I know Dame got hot in the third quarter, but was able to stymie that a little bit down the stretch. How big was he there? How important is he on Saturday? Yeah, huge. I mean, it's funny. I got a text from a national reporter during the game being like, man, Aaron Neesmith's like the perfect guy. I want 117 of him on my team because he's a guy that doesn't do anything amazing. He's not perfect in any way, but he does everything solid. 
He's all about the team, and you're right. I mean, I would guess his chest um, and arms and everything are sore from the amount of blows that he was absorbing from Giannis because especially seeing him up close, and we had way better seats here um, for the game yesterday, is you see those head-to-head battles and the constant pressure applied. I thought Aaron did about as well as you could in those matchups. I thought – Benedict Mathern had some spots. I mean, that one was a clear mismatch. I thought he hung in enough. Uh, and then Nimhard's the next big question because if you don't have him, that's a that's a tough loss. And remember, he hit the big shot to beat the Lakers uh, last year to high, kind of highlight his rookie season. Um, it appears he suffered a hyperextended right knee. We don't know just yet for sure. Um, but I would imagine they're getting tests done right now leading up to practice. But those guys are your defensive stop excuse me, defensive stoppers. So you definitely need them coming up tomorrow. Scott, Scott Agnes is our guest. He's out in Las Vegas from Fieldhouse Files. When you look at what Rick Carlisle's done, and, and I'll give him a lot of credit here because I, I think it's one thing to have depth of being able to plug guys in. Isaiah Jackson comes to mind, or TJ McConnell, to be able to come in and give you really good quality minutes in key moments. The thing that I think is a challenge is keeping guys like that invested to the point where they are ready to go and they go in there without any chip at all when they might go a game without playing and then another game have to go out and play 16 minutes. What do you think has been – has Rick Carlisle himself maybe even matured as a coach, which is odd to say for a guy with his experience, but do you think maybe he learned some things from the way some of his star players towards the end might have felt in Dallas? Yeah, I think that to that latter point, I'm sure that has absolutely um, affected the way in which he's gone about treating and, and helping and bringing along Tyrese in, in comparison to what he did with Luca. Where, you know, talking to my some of my Dallas media friends down here, they're like, "Oh no, there was no relationship. It was awful. It did not go over well." Um, I mean, why would you leave Luca if it wasn't bad, right? So, I'm sure that helped inform him more specifically with a guy now like Tyrese who was just taking off and. What a leap for for Carlisle to be able to go from Luca to Tyrese. But in terms of the depth, I mean, I, I think that's because that's worked out well and guys not getting hot and bothered about a lot because it's a collection of guys that haven't done anything just yet and they're all kind of motivated and, and inspired towards the same end goal. Like, you look at this roster, I think Miles Turner's the only guy that has played in a playoff game um, amongst this group. I guess Neesmith might have had a minor role with Boston. Um, but this group, I mean, Buddy Heald has the most games played in the league without reaching the playoffs. So that's what's helping to inspire this group, and they're all kind of on that same timeline. Now, if they had to play a seven-game series against, you know, the Milwaukee Bucks, I think it's a little bit different. You're playing in their environment, those sort of things. But to go back then to about the magic of this in-season tournament, again, then it has more of that March Madness feel, it's kind of one win can kind of change everything. And this young Pacers group um, maybe is too inexperienced to even know the difference, and they're just thriving in this environment. Scott, does this feel different in terms of Pacers teams that you've covered? Again, I get it. It's a unique environment already, so that's going to be different. And I know, as you mentioned, this isn't a playoff run in terms of the traditional sense, and it doesn't have the adjustments of a seven-game series, but – does this team feel different, or how does it feel different than previous iterations of the Pacers you've covered? Yeah, I think the – I would say the first thing I think that feels different about this group is in some ways they're so talented at one thing being offense 
that it's helping to overcome their deficiencies defensively. Like, they have not been a good defensive team, although they, we see it in spurts. That's the al- annoying, kind of alarming thing is we can see they are capable in times, like we saw much during the fourth quarter, where I think Giannis and Dame combined for, like, 10 points. I was just sitting back waiting for, like, all right, Dame will take over, right? Nope, not yet. But uh, And then the, the makeup of this team, that's why continuity is such a big factor as well. You bring back basically all but one rotation player from last season, and I think that's a very advantageous move um, for a, a young group going into the second season. And because that, they're on the same page. They're gelling. Obi Toppins fit in seamlessly um, in what he's doing. And then you you have some quiet leaders kind of behind the scenes that are helping bring all this along. Like, you know the obvious ones, but then I think about, uh, you know, T.J. McConnell and what, what he's accomplished, and he's a coach in the making. So all the invaluable experiences and lessons he can t- teach along the way. And eventually, maybe we'll get to see some of the rookies and, and there will be ample playing time for those two guys to get in because I think Jared Walker could really help fill a knee. That's why he was drafted. He's just not ready yet. Scott, we appreciate the time as always. By the way, somebody, you'll like this, Scott. This is the ultimate compliment, I guess, to your uh, how tied in you are to the Pacers. Somebody sends me uh, a tweet. Wait a minute. Pacers beat the Bucks, advance to a championship game, Jake, and you have a Pacer employee on, and your first question is about the environment. Thank God for Jimmy Cook. Well, that's good for you, Jimmy, right? Oh, hey, look at me. Um, so, Scott, not only um, are you not an employee, obviously, you write for Fieldhouse Files, but secondly, and, and you do some stuff for us as well and come on this program, but we also did – we actually just got off of the float on Monument Circle from the parade we led down Meridian Street for the first 30 minutes of the program. But it's cool. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. We do what we can to help our city, right? Well, the thing is, Scott, I mean, and then – went on to tell me that the national media continues to scoop the local media because as you know scott i i don't have any insights to the pacers at all right i mean in terms of just yeah, the way things yeah. work you know I, I feel bad for you it's unfortunate right? <laughs> no that's yeah I, I, that's just far removed i don't i don't understand that thought right there but I, to, the, to the bigger picture i will say it has been interesting and, and good for the team the fact like last night totally that the national media is on board no seats available in the post-game press conference room. Yeah, There was more questions than they had time to get to. And in comparison, for everyone listening, there's normally three of us asking questions post-game. That's it. That's it. And last night, you could, we didn't have enough time to do all the questions and answers that we wanted to. And everybody, I'm sure, is blowing out a Tyrese Halliburton piece today. That's good for the city. That's great for the Pacers. Scott, it also is good for you because it means we get to continue to read your coverage of Fieldhouse Files, including on Saturday about the Lakers game and your time out in Vegas. Appreciate the time as always. You bet. Thanks, Jake. All right, Scott Agnes joining us on the program. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, Ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Pacers are headed to the finals, the in-season tournament finals, single elimination style against the Los Angeles Lakers, which means we need to get a little national perspective. And who better than one of my favorites? It's Bo Estes of NBA.com's Top 10 Lore, as well as on NBA TV. Bo, I want to dive right into it first. Thanks, as always, for making the time for us. Good to hear from you. Happy holidays to you as well. You were active as well as most of NBA Twitter last night in reacting to all of the in-season tournament. 
Let's start first with the Pacers over the Bucks. Your initial reaction and the budding superstar, or as Reggie Miller put it last night, a superstar rising in front of our eyes in Tyrese Halliburton in their big win over Milwaukee in the semis. I mean, I think Tyrese Halliburton is in full bloom. I think he's a superstar right now. I think we just have to recognize it. Maybe we were late to the game. Maybe we nationally didn't recognize it as quickly as you guys did locally, but I, I described it last night as a basketball revolution. <clears throat> Excuse me. I just haven't seen um, anything quite like this in the modern era. I go, I had to go back, and I was thinking about, and this is this is going to you know be well before much of your audience. This is like the 1980s Denver Nuggets with the way that they just freight trains score you and churn out points and churn out points and churn out points and get them quickly on the fast break. Um, the other thing that it reminded me of, and this is really reaching out there, is Loyola Marymount and Paul Westhead's days with Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball. I mean, they seem to be like water going downhill. They find the weakness in your defense, and they expose it. They exploit it. If you adjust, they find something new and move over there. I was watching for a while last night, and I, I just kept thinking, they're getting open free-throw line jumpers against this zone time after time after time. Of course they're going to win this game. They didn't even shoot particularly well from the three-point line, and they were able to score in loads. So um, it's it's something to witness. Um, you know, like you mentioned, I come at it from a national perspective, and I've been doing this for a long time. And I keep trying to put this style of basketball, Jimmy, into the playoffs and, and say, okay, how does this work against a team that's going to see them several nights in a row that's going to make adjustments? Um, and the one thing that I keep coming back to is Tyrese Halliburton doesn't make turnovers. So it's not like you're going to screw him up. Um, it's going to be fun to watch this team ceiling. I don't know that they're uh, an NBA Finals team right now, uh, but I remember back before the Golden State Warriors became, you know, this four-time champion machine, uh, you know, even Charles Barkley on national TV, a jump-shooting team can't win an NBA championship. It's just never going to happen. They're going to get exposed. Um, I don't want to place too many doubts on this team. I think they're they're that good, um, and, and with Tyrese Halliburton at the head of the snake, Lord knows a lot can happen with this squad. Now, first off, Bo, let's not sell short Jeff Fryer either on those Loyola Marymount teams. I mean, come on. you got to have the guy that just stands there and hits shots, right? And, and then gets it's Quinn Buckner laughing from the Long Beach Arena. I mean, let's be fair. Um, you know what? Well, first of all, I feel seen. Thank you for recognizing what I'm to reference here. I appreciate it. But I, literally, that's what I was dialing back to last night. I was like, totally. where have I No, I get it. Before? It's something like that. And, you know, but here's the thing. That Loyola team, for those listening that that aren't sure of the reference, the the Bo Kimball, Hank Gathers, you know Jeff Fryer was their shooter, but they just played this wide open style that took the NCAA tournament by storm. Hank Gathers, of course, unfortunately passed, but then in the tournament they just scored a billion points, and then they went up against Vegas, and they kind of got beat at their own game, but Vegas was able to ramp up a little defensively on them with Stacey Ogman. The same thing of those Denver Nuggets teams when you've got like Fat Lever and I think probably Alex English late in his career. They're scoring a billion points, Bo, but what, what became the Achilles for those teams was defensively. So question is, clearly Indiana needs to 
tighten the screws defensively. But when you do that, do you run the risk in, as a result, dropping yourself one cylinder down on offense and thus taking away what makes you unique? I think you do. I really think you do. And I think, you know, you've got a wonderful coach in Rick Carlisle who's going to have to gauge that perfectly and, and really adjust the dial. Uh, but look, anybody who's watched NBA playoff basketball knows it's a different thing than regular season basketball. It's slower. They allow more physicality. Um, you know, for, for your you know fans who have been watching NBA basketball for years and years and even dating back to the 90s, um, it's not quite as physical, the defense, as it used to be. And by not quite as, I mean not nearly as physical. Um, so they allow less physicality, but in the playoffs it gets tougher. So I, I see teams go through an adjustment. Even those Golden State Warriors had to get beat a couple times in the playoffs to learn how to really ratchet it up. Um, and I, I would expect that would be true of Indiana but as I pointed out last night, it's such a, a different approach to basketball, and you've got such a uniquely gifted player at point guard in Halliburton who just doesn't seem to make mistakes. That who knows? I mean, it's almost like a wild card bet that we can't tell you if, if maybe this team can make a deep run in the playoffs. Um, and the other side of this is I think it's it's a wonderful thing that this in season tournament has happened because it's a national introduction to this team. You know, we've been following this story. You know, we see the stats, we see the numbers. It's, you know, we're into December and neither Indiana nor an Indiana opponent has scored less than a hundred points in a game this year. That's just bizarre. I, I mean, just that number alone is crazy to me, but that's the way they're going. And that's the way they approach basketball. Uh, so, you know, buckle up for the ride. And the, the other thing I pointed out last night is I'm good friends with the people who pick the games on national TV, if they win this game against the Lakers tomorrow and it's wildly entertaining, they could be a flex game later in the season. People may start to really want to see nationally this Indiana Pacers ball club because they're so fun to watch. They're just a joy. Halliburton's shot, Bo. Bo Estes is our guest from NBA.com and NBA TV. Halliburton's shot is so unique, obviously, because – of the low presentation initially when he's shooting, right? He doesn't have the Reggie Miller form of like the high above the head flick of the wrist. For that reason, he needs to create space for himself because it does take him perhaps a little bit longer to set his shot. Right now he has the foot quickness and the dribble quickness to get himself that space. Is he going to have to read or defense is going to figure out how to counter that, especially like with a double or whatever else where he is going to have to figure out how to get a quicker release, or is his foot quickness such that it offsets it for him permanently? Well, uh, it's not Jimmy Chetwood, right? It's you know, it's not a perfect classic form. Uh, he he. The one thing I think he has going for him is he's six five, and he's often guarded by people that are a little bit smaller than him. I know switches happen and everything else. Uh, it is bizarre. Every time I see it, I think, gosh, that doesn't seem like it should work. But it does. Uh, again, it's it's a good question for now, but it's a better question for the playoffs when the grind gets a little tougher, when people work a little bit harder through picks, uh, when they allow people to work a little bit harder through picks. 
I think that's when it gets challenging. But, you know, I think he can make it when it's reasonably well guarded. But there is a hitch in it, and it takes just an extra half beat longer, and it allows defenses to recover. I, I saw you know him in an interview the other night, uh, and coaches at first wanted to change it, and then they just saw it going in and going in and going in, and they left it alone. I don't think that shot will change much throughout the course of his career because it's successful enough. Uh, and he, you know, again, going back to the original point, He's just taller than most of the, the point guards in the league, so he's got a little height advantage that allows him just a, just an hair extra time. Uh, but it's not something that I would go teach somebody in, in basketball. It's just, it's just, a, it's just an odd-looking shot. Bo Estes, our guest. You hear him on NBA.com's top 10 throughout the course of the NBA season and see him as well on NBA TV. This is weird because I'm going to become the official interviewer for one question because I want Jake to weigh in on this after Bo does. Bo, you and I have had this text exchange a little bit this week, and then you posted this tweet last night, which reads as follows. Tyrese Halliburton may produce the greatest Indiana Pacers season ever. Bo, from a national perspective, what makes you say that? And Jake, from the local angle, what would it take for that to be true? So I'll I'll give you just my thought. I went back and looked at Reggie Miller's MVP voting, and I've looked at, you know, Pacers MVP voting, and I thought to myself, Tyrese Halliburton, if this run continues, well, look, I don't even want to say he could finish as high as second. He could win the darn thing. He really could. Um, But, you know, you, you imagine that Nikola Jokic is the favorite um, he, Joel Embiid, and Giannis Antetokounmpo have sort of separated themselves from the rest of the players in the NBA the past couple of seasons, particularly when it comes to regular season performance. So I would start with that group of guys. Behind them, I put Tyrese Halliburton, and he is on the rise. So let's say he gets a second-place finish or a third-place finish in the MVP voting. I just, I just will offer up that may be the single greatest season an Indiana Pacers player has ever put up. Uh, you know, I'm not going back to ABA days. I didn't look that far back. But, it, you know, sort of in, since the three-point era, what else is out there? Uh, I, I'm not sure. It, it really does seem within the realm of possibility. Here's the thing, Bo, and I think, I think we're kind of saying the same thing in two different languages. Reggie Miller was the face of this franchise and still is to a great extent because he helped break through this franchise finally from its ABA days into its NBA legitimacy. But he was never more than a third-team All-NBA player. Part of that is because of the depth of the position he played at the time he played it. But I think that we, understandably, rightly, and celebratory sense so, probably almost exaggerate his level of overall over the course of season greatness because his greatest moments came in the postseason either against the greatest player in the world or in the greatest arena in the world. And so therefore it elevates us where in a vacuum we see it thinking that that represents the totality of the body of work. And he was a fabulous player. But in terms of breakthrough overall, all statistical elevation of everybody around him, 
Halliburton this year, you are correct, probably has that ability to do that to a unique level. Billy Knight would be the only player that had a scoring level to this to this volume on a consistent basis, but it was on a team that was winning. You know, he was averaging 28 a game, and his team won 27 games, right? So what good does that do you? So I would agree with you, actually. Well, it's an awkward question because I think you're right. Look, I, I did worked with Reggie Miller. I, I know a bit. There's a star quality to Reggie as well. Uh, and, and the other point you made, I think, is really interesting. He elevated that team. He elevated that town. He made them popular. He had that incredible run in MSG. And then he, you know, he really pushed the GOAT. He was pushing Michael Jordan pretty, pretty far. So um, I, I think that there is that place in our memory banks with Reggie Miller. I think nationally, the first player anybody thinks of when they think of the Pacers is Reggie Miller. Oh, for I sure. I really do. But Absolutely. You know, Bo, what's interesting is, and it is a fascinating conversation because – and look, I, I absolutely love Reggie Miller, right? And Reggie Miller was able to do it for not just one season, but for like a decade and a half, right? Yep. So there's your difference right there. There's the benchmark. But that said, I think people forget part of what elevated Reggie Miller was once you acquired Dale and Antonio Davis to get him free on the wings, once you acquired Derek McKee to facilitate from passes out of the low post, that lifted Reggie Miller, whereas Tyrese Halliburton is the guy that right now is playing the role of the Davis brothers and Derek McKee by elevating everybody else. I, I think that's true, and I, th- I think the other thing that, that is, is tough to ever account for is imagine Reggie Miller with the greenest of green lights in this era, in the three-point oh, era, yeah, yeah. where there's all sorts of space, and he's just able to light folks up from three. You know, I talked about Halliburton being tall. Reggie's six seven, So he would be shooting all day long, wide-open threes. He would be absolutely crushing. And I, I try to, you know, when I think of the impact that the three-point era has had on statistics, imagine just, for instance, if the NFL – all of a sudden arbitrarily decided those touchdowns that are beyond the 10-yard line are worth nine points and everything inside is worth six points. So we give you 50% more for touchdowns outside the nine. It just fundamentally changes the game. Uh, So the scoring is different. And those that are specialists before the green light became super green, and credit Steph for that, uh, their stats aren't what they really would have been. And I think Reggie in this era – would be, you know, obviously a super max player, and his star would be even brighter now than it was then. Bo Estes, NBA.com's top 10 with us. Bo, when you look at this matchup on Saturday night, in terms of the style of play and the star power and rising star power, even if some national, not you, but some national might knock the fact that it's the Pacers there, I think it's going to be a highly entertaining, great matchup, as good of a matchup in terms of what's going to be on display as the league could have hoped for in this inaugural event of the NBA in-season tournament, the chase for the NBA Cup. What do you see when you look at both these teams and how they match up? Well, just first of all, from the matchup itself, uh, from a TV perspective, the city of Milwaukee does not necessarily rate better than the city right, of Indiana. Right. Milwaukee became a thing because Giannis is there and he's one of the best players in the world. I think that this introduction to Tyrese Halliburton on a world stage is valuable to the NBA. So I, my personal opinion is it's great Indiana is there. Uh, as far as a matchup, boy, if I'm Indiana, I'm just sitting there thinking, 
let's run these old guys into the ground. Let's just make them run and run and run and run. And, oh, man, I wish this game was in Denver because I would run them even harder. Uh, and I, that would be my approach. I would see how far you could push that Lakers team. Now, to me, LeBron James is the smartest player in the league. He's going to control tempo as much as he can and, and move this game in a way that advantages his skills and his abilities at 38, which are still tremendous. Um, Indiana is, you know, of all their great things, they're a pretty terrible rebounding team. Uh, and so it's just a huge contrast in style. I mean, Anthony Davis is going to crush them on the boards. Uh, LeBron James is really going to pound them. Uh, if their shooters are hitting, if the Lakers shooters are hitting, and by shooters I mean those that are not Anthony Davis and LeBron James, those other supplemental players, it gets challenging, I think, for Indiana. Uh, but I think Indiana can push the tempo in such a way uh, that you can you can run the tires off the Lakers. I really think so. I, I'm I this is me trying to wrap my mind around the Pacers, and I really want to see them try that. I want to see how far they can push the needle, get to as, as close to Loyola Marymount as you can, because I think it would be fascinating to see how the Lakers respond. I don't know that they have it in them. I honestly don't. Um, I don't expect to see either of these teams in the finals. So to me, this is this is a huge moment for both squads, uh, and I'm excited for it. I really am. Bo, I, we could do – I mean, this show goes till 3 – <laughs> we could go until three on Loyola Marymount, to be honest with you. Oh, absolutely. Like, well, it's, a, it's one of those things I wish young viewers would just go back uh, and look at the longer game tape. Don't look at the highlights. Look at the longer game tape for what they were. It's two things. It's a choice. It's a conscious choice. What they were giving up for what they were taking. And that's the approach. It was so, it was so bizarre. It was so out there. But it did work to a point. Listen, uh, so that's the question. Th- that listen, Bo, that ninety game against Michigan in the tournament. I mean, Michigan's the defending yeah. national champs. They got Ramil Robinson out there, and like Mark Hughes and Loivat, and they're literally running around like, well, "What are we doing here?" I, I mean, we're down one forty nine to one ten. What what are we doing <laughs> here, right? I want to see Indiana try that with the Lakers. I really do. I want to see how far they can push them. And, you know, when I, when I first jumped on with you guys, one of the things I pointed out is, like, I'm scared to place limitations on the Pacers, much like people were placing limitations on the Golden State Warriors. I don't know how far this can go. I don't know how much this can change the game. But when I saw them last night, Milwaukee didn't know what to do. So they go to this zone, and it's open free-throw line jumper after open free-throw line jumper. That's just easy for NBA players. That's low-hanging fruit. They're going to knock that out all day. And that's what Indiana got without a single turnover from Halliburton. But, you know, so, they've got both. Yeah. They, they do have good pieces to complement and it's carry great. with them. Like, And the guy that really I think has been important for them, you know, what Indiana's doing is impressive because you have Isaiah Jackson giving quality minutes coming off of games where he's not seeing the floor. Same for T.J. McConnell. Same for Aaron Neesmith. But the guy that, the guy that I thought – they probably felt was going to be elevated a little more so far this year that hasn't taken off might be Matherin, but that's offset yeah. by the fact that, that Buddy Heald, you were ready to put Buddy Heald out to pasture, and yet he just keeps scratching at the back door, and it's like, all right, we'll come back in, right? 
and he seemed ready to go. He seemed, get me out of here. Totally. You know, I thought that Buddy Heald wanted out. So now I, I saw Sam Amick write something in The Athletic that, you know, Indiana was a place people wanted out of, and all of a sudden now it's a place people want into. People want to be a part of this thing. Uh, you know, that goes back to Halliburton, but, like, good Lord, the players seem to really buy into this thing. And I don't know what clicked. It'll be interesting to look back and say, was there a moment where everybody's eyes in that Pacers locker room got it? where everybody sort of snapped to attention and said, oh, this is going to work. I would be fascinated to know if there was a collective moment because there seems to be so much buy-in right now. Uh, and it's, it's fantastic to watch. It's a long season, guys. It's a grind. The NBA season is a grind. So enjoy this moment right now. Uh, but again, I, <laughs> I don't think it has to end. I really don't think it has to. I think they can change basketball. You know, when, when, when the Golden State Warriors went on their run and they had the two greatest shooters of all time pouring in threes, everybody said, well, this is basketball at its you know, furthest evolution. The one thing I can tell you is it's always changing. There's always something next. There's always another answer. And maybe, just maybe, these Indiana Pacers are that answer. Bo Estes, NBA.com, NBA.com's top 10. Bo, I know you touched on this a little bit earlier in the conversation, but just kind of to bring it back full circle after the NBA Cup, and let's just say for the sake of argument, the Pacers were able to capture it and they beat the Lakers and they hang a banner or whatever they decide to do with it. When you look at the rest of the year and when you look at a seven-game series, Jake put it very nicely in that you don't want to change too much because it might break what you're doing, but I, I don't know if it can last seven games is there one thing you could point to right now that if you just modify this, it doesn't ruin the recipe, but it might put it to a new flavor where you're able to make a deep run in the playoffs if they're able to sustain and get there? Well, I, just the, the one thing that when you look at their stats and they're, they're all so impressive, and then you, then you look at that rebounding and you say, well, I know that in the playoffs things are going to slow down at least for one side, maybe Indiana keeps their, their foot on the gas the whole time, but on one side, it's going gonna, it's gonna to slow down. So if you could somehow find a way to get more rebounds, to get yourself, at, you know, you're the worst in the NBA, basically, at rebound. They're one of the worst. And, you know, it, if you could just lift yourself up there a little bit and get critical rebounds and not give teams second chances uh, and, and maybe give yourself a few more second chances, I think that would be helpful. But again, uh, you know, it's, it's like we've been saying, there's a philosophy, there's an approach here, and you've got to decide how much you want to tinker with that. And, you know, say you go get a player at the deadline, does that mess up this whole magic recipe that you've got going right now? I don't know. You, I, I just think that's something you've got to be very, very careful with because you've caught lightning in the bottle and you don't want to take the cap off that bottle right now. Bo, I was literally – to tie in Loyola Marymount in today's NBA, which we've masterfully done, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And we might be the only two guys right now that are even aware of this Loyola Marymount fascination. But um, I had mentioned this, I think, on this show recently. I-, I was literally 49 and a half years old before I realized that in the, not to bring up the negative of Loyola Marymount, but in the Hank Gathers tragedy, do you know who the point guard was for the team they were playing? That was on the floor when that happened? No, who was it? Eric Spolstra. Oh, wow. Eric Spolstra was the point oh. guard for Portland, and I, I, I hate to – I mean, this 
kind of a negative thing here, but he, he was literally the guy. He's the only other player in the frame of the video when you see, unfortunately, the tragic Hank Gathers video. Well, I, is there an interview? I, I'm sure that he's been interviewed. About I, I know. I, it's fascinating, isn't it? That I mean, that's a fairly indelible moment in basketball history, but at the same time, I understand also the sensitivity of it. You know what I mean? But you would think, well, right? Well, it's interesting because, like, I, I used to go down to, uh, you know, interview the Heat when Dwayne Wade was a rookie. And, and, you know, Udonis Haslam was young there, and he transferred his body, you know, from a heavy guy at Florida to a much more athletic NBA player. And Spolstra was a young guy in that organization, but he was a star. And, you know, people would point to him and say, keep your eye on this guy. Yeah, and, and- uh, it's, there's something about that guy that that is basketball magic, but it's interesting. I I had no idea about that. And, and you know, one other question, I guess, with all of that, I saw that Stephen Holder, our friend who works for ESPN and lives here in Indianapolis and is a Miami native that covered the NBA during that time, he made the comparison last night that this Halliburton kind of breakthrough reminds him – of the epiphany the rest of the league had when they saw that Dwayne Wade was not going away and that it's a similar kind of breakthrough for both players. That's really good, actually. That's really good because, you know, if you watch Dwayne Wade in college, you thought, man, he is really good. But you never really, I guess, jump to the conclusion he's going to be a top five NBA player when he really hits it well. Uh, And then there was just sort of a moment when he was a part of that group and there was no taking them away from that group. And I think, you know, the NBA is tight at the top right now. There are so many great players right now. You know, I mentioned the three that I think are sort of separate from everybody else. There's also Luka Doncic. You've also got older players like LeBron and Steph. But I think Halliburton has catapulted himself into that group, and it would take something remarkable to remove him. I think, I think he's not where he is. I think he's still going forward. He is Bo Estes of NBA.com's Top 10. You hear him throughout the NBA season. Follow him on Twitter, NBA Bo. Bo, thanks as always for taking the time. I'm sure we'll have you on as the NBA season continues to unfold and enjoy it Saturday night. Hey, we're going to break down 87 UNLV next time, Bo. Is that cool? I can't wait. I can't wait. Let's lock it in, man. Let's lock it in, Bo. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bo. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Eddie Garrison spinning a little Beastie Boys. A little license to ill, right? Now, the album cover of this, of course, was, in theory, an airplane. My buddy Chiefs fan Steve, Jimmy, your brethren within the Chiefs kingdom. Yes. Kansas City Steve, my buddy, said, Jake, my trainee Roger, and I'm asking this for Kevin Bowen, who joins us now on the program. I'm 99.999% certain I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask Kevin Bowen anyway. He says, Jake, my trainee Roger... And I are both wondering, do the Colts fly or bus to Cincinnati? It is kind of odd to think of like an NFL team taking a bus down 74, but it's equally odd to think of a flight that would be like 35 minutes. Uh, Kevin Bowen, thanks for joining us from the morning show, of course, the wake-up call with Kevin and Andy. Um, Somewhat flippant, somewhat serious. Which is it? Do the Colts, they take a bus or do they fly down? They bus it. 
they will bus it. Yeah, police escort, I assume. So, yeah, don't be on 74 tomorrow at whatever, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I, I somewhat wish they, like, stopped at East Central High School for a walk. That would be great. That would be really Go cool. Go to Greensburg, but, check out the tree in the, in the county courthouse and the whole deal, right? And get the offensive lineman on the Honda plant. Yeah, I mean, you could, you know, you could, you could do the whole thing there. So yeah, bus it there, bus it home, and uh, I, I believe I, I think it's one of the very few, if only, bus trips for any team in the NFL. Okay, so speaking of that, Kevin, when you talk about the offensive lineman stopping at the Honda plant, there is one of them that we now know might be able to walk through the plant but won't be walking through the game. Tell us what Shane Steichen had to say in terms of who we definitively know will not be playing on Sunday. Yeah, the two out, Johnson Taylor and Braden Smith, uh, obviously I think the Taylor we, we knew he's a week and a half post-surgery with that right thumb. He was at practice again today. He was at practice the last couple of days. And then Braden Smith, you know, he exited very early in Sunday's win over Tennessee. After three snaps, he was out due to a right knee injury. So this will be game number five miss for him. You know, if you look at his career, pretty healthy outside of one other season, 2021. I think he missed five or six games. Um, he's 27 years old. And I, I don't know. I just feel like the inevitable question people ask it when any guy is had an injury-riddled season. Hey, you know, what, what's this cap situation? What's his, what's his contract look like? I still think we're a little premature to maybe view him in the same light as, like, how we even viewed Shaq Leonard a month or two ago. Uh, but if they wanted to, they could get out of that contract with a minimal-ish cap hit this offseason. But still, I think if you're going to ask me my opinion on it, I think we're a little bit early on it. The fan. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Zone Kevin Bowen taking some time with us. KB, I've asked this to a couple different people on the program this week. I want to get your thoughts, but I'm going to ask it in a slightly different way. Going into the year, the expectation is it's going to be Anthony Richardson. It's going to have his cannon arm and his mobility, and we'll see what this offense looks like. That gets derailed, and now it's Gardner Minshew. But I had said, I think you had felt the same way, that Gardner Minshew is good enough to get a clear answer that you need going into this offseason, which is what do you have at wideout? There's a deeper question here, but is that statement fair? That going in after the injury to Anthony Richardson, the thought was, well, Minshew's still good enough where you can get a better reading than last year on what you have at wideout. Would you agree with that? I would. Very low bar last year, to be fair. Correct. Yes. yes. Okay. So the reason I ask that is there's been this discussion the last couple of weeks of have we been too critical of Alec Pierce and is he actually winning his matchups, but it's either not in the scheme of the offense right now with Minshew or whether they don't trust his arm strength, whatever it is. There's multiple different variables there. So that leads into this question, which is, is Minshew good enough, or has he been good enough to get a clear answer on Alec Pierce going into this offseason? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say clear. Um, yeah, I thought Reggie Wayne had an interesting tweet after the game Sunday night. He tweeted something to the effect of, like, you know, why wideouts just need opportunities. And, you know, I, I think in a blanket statement, that could be true for some, maybe most wideouts, but I don't think that exact answer, and I would say a little bit of a vague answer from Reggie, 
applies to Pierce. I think Pierce needs very specific opportunities, and those opportunities are the ones that he got on Sunday. You know, there is a risk and there is a high-end reward when you do target Alec Pierce down the field. Obviously, the risk of it is, you know, you, you need your offensive line to really hold up, and when you take a seven-step drop or you want the quarterback to hold on to it for three or four seconds, you obviously are exposing him to a pass rush and potentially some big plays uh, for the defense. And when you, you know, throw it downfield, you know, obviously there's a lot of room for air there. But, again, like we saw Sunday, there's tremendous reward with it. So, you know, evaluating Josh Downs, evaluating Michael Pittman with Gardner Minshew, I think is different than if you had Alec Pierce and you – or, excuse me, if you had Anthony Richardson and he was, you know, known as kind of the deep ball thrower and he could, you know, provide a little bit of a clearer picture on Pierce. So, um, again, I don't think you're going to get a clear, clear answer – but I think we will see at the end of the season just another reminder of with a deep ball throwing quarterback, which by all means that is Richardson. Granted, we didn't really see that in his small sample size this year. That Pierce can give you something. Um, but I think that's just you know that's kind of how uh, I guess a somewhat educated opinion on it based off what Richardson is known for and what Pierce has shown even in limited opportunities down the field this year. Kevin Bowen is our guest. Of course, you hear him on the mornings on this radio station. Kevin, we were talking about this yesterday. I, I want your your thought on it. Taking nothing away from the Colts, because you have to win the games that are on your schedule, and a four-game streak is a four-game streak, right? That said, they have not played the most stout of competition in the NFL. Maybe that's helped them a little bit. But what area, if any has the level of opponent during this streak masked a deficiency for the Colts? In other words, is there something that the Colts are doing or not doing that is indeed a little bit dangerous or playing with fire, but fortunately it was not such that the likes of a Tampa or New England or Tennessee was able to exploit it, but a better team could? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I. I'd probably start here. I would say just overall team competence from the opponent. That might be too harsh, but, you know, and, you know, I believe the combined records are, I think it was like 12 and 36 of the four teams you beat here in the last four weeks. Um, you know, also, if you look at it, you know, from a quarterback standpoint, you know, if, if Baker Mayfield doesn't get hurt on that opening drive, you know, does that game look a little different? You know, I, I, I felt, I mean, on that opening drive, that was obviously a huge play when he exited. Due to injury, they had to settle for a field goal, and that was obviously a one-possession game at the end. Um, but I would say specifically, I'll kind of combo it, you know, QB and wideout, and, you know, how much has your defense, you know, really, really been tested. You know, oftentimes, I think last year was an indication of that for the Colts. I think having a competent quarterback is a big influence on how often you sack that quarterback. You know, I, I tend to think, I mean, go back to Matthew Stafford, the Colts played the Rams earlier this year. I think the Colts hit Stafford, if I believe correctly, once in that game. And I don't think that's because the Rams have some great offensive line or Stafford is super elusive, but he just knows when to get rid of it. He knows his game, and uh, he he knows what an opposing defense oftentimes is doing. So I think that was a big reason why the Rams had success without Cooper Cup and you know came into your building and beat you. Um, now, the good news is you aren't necessarily going to get back to that level of quarterback play. I mean, I know what Jake Browning looked like on Monday night, but – you know, still, it's a very manageable quarterback slate the rest of the way. The other kind of combo off of that is, I would say, wide out. 
and just the depth of those positions. And, and I think Sunday will be the toughest wide receiver challenge all year. Hell, you saw it Monday night. I mean, Jamar Chase is, I mean, he's crazy. Best receivers in all of football. And then they have depth with your guy, Jake, and T. Higgins. And then I know Tyler Boyd's a little banged up on the injury report, but assuming he gives it a go, you know, he can still uh, you know, test whatever you do third cornerback-wise for this week. If Juju Brent's two practices is enough for him or um, if it's going to be Daryl Baker Jr. in that third corner role and then obviously Jalen Jones in front of him. So that would probably be the area, just kind of overall passing game, a little bit of quarterback, and then for Sunday specifically, again, I think the wideout challenge is immense. Kevin Bowen is our guest. You hear him 7 to 10 a.m. on the wake-up call with KB and Andy on these very airwaves. Of course, as the Colts beat rider, you find his work on 107.5thefan.com. KB, you mentioned Juju Brents, and you had tweeted this in your long form from where Shane Steichen was in terms of his comments about availability, said Juju Brents questionable, and you had just alluded to it, two days of practice is enough for a game day role. This is kind of twofold because if this was Joe Burrow that was under center, I would argue if he's a living body in terms of Juju Brents, it, you need him out there. But that said, Josh Browning, he's not Joe Burrow by any stretch, but he's not looked bad. He's looked competent within the weapons that are immense with the Bengals. So as you evaluate both how that cornerback has looked, how that cornerback room has looked over the last couple of weeks, even though the competition has been what it is, and then look at what's on the other side in Cincinnati. Is this a must-have for him if he's good to go and the risk of re-injury is slim regardless of the reps you would like to him have had this week? Yeah, I think if healthy, I, I would want to see him playing a big role at corner. Um, now, that's my opinion. I, I don't I, I don't know. I, I mean, Maybe I don't even think the Colts maybe view it in that same light after two practices. I think maybe it could be Daryl Baker still in that third corner role. Um, I like what Brent showed in the small sample size earlier this year. Now, you know, maybe I'm not giving enough credit to the dude has just missed a month and a half of practice. I mean, hell, he's outside of Jelani Woods. He's the most injured player the Colts have had all season long in terms of, you know, practice time missed. I would assume Jonathan Taylor by this point of the season has probably practiced even with missing a little bit more time, you know, more than, than Juju has. So, um, I, I guess I understand where the Colts are coming from it with that, but um, I think a lot also depends on this. I would assume, given it is Cincinnati, that you know you, they're going to be in a three-wide receiver set a whole lot because that's the strength of their football team. So that means you're going to be in a three-cornerback set a whole lot. I, I don't know how like rotational Gus Bradley views that spot. I, I can't recall many times in the last two years Gus Bradley has rotated corners within a game. You know, he rotated safeties last week, for example, with Nick Cross and Rodney Thomas. I don't think he feels the same way about corner. Um, so I, I think that'll be something also to watch. But, you know, go back to the New Orleans game. And I know that was Tony Brown in the game at that point. But New Orleans, you know, they went deep into their wideout group and they burnt the Colts and it was costly. And if you go back to the Jacksonville meetings, they went deep into their wideout groups and it was costly. So, that is of concern to me, and if Mother Nature continues to improve, it looks like maybe the precipitation for Sunday is going to be a little bit less than it was once thought it would be earlier in the week. You would think that would favor Jake Browning and trying to test the depth of the Colts cornerback room. Kevin, everything seems to be 
falling into place this year for the Colts, which is weird to say because of the injuries, the Jonathan Taylor situation, the Anthony Richardson situation. But in terms of externally, it's not, you know, we've seen years in this in the past where all of a sudden each week, that week's opponent, like the starting quarterback gets hurt, you're going against a backup, you know, other teams can't get out of their own way. I mean, now you have a situation, Cincinnati on Sunday, then Pittsburgh, these are teams that the Colts themselves can land the knockout blow. And it's great. And they've taken advantage of that. And, and it's wonderful. And they're right in the thick of things. My concern would be this. Is there any chance that everything falling into place for the Colts this year kind of creates a false narrative for them next year when things ramp up a little bit and actually makes it even more difficult for Anthony Richardson? Or is that me being way too pessimistic? No, I, I, I don't think so. Um, I think there are certainly elements of reality in that statement. Um, yeah, I mean, the Colts have had a super manageable schedule. Um, you know, they played the NFC South as the opposite NFC division this year. I believe next year, I want to say it's the NFC North, which, you know, offers certainly a little bit more competence in the NFC South. And a bye week when you got to play Chicago, so that's cool. <laughs> and then AFC wise, you know, next year is the AFC East. I, I think just strictly from a quarterback standpoint, you know, a healthy Josh Allen and a healthy Tua uh, coming into your building that, that that looks a whole lot different than the quarterbacks you faced in your building this season. Um, you know, assuming you finish, I mean, last year they finished last in the division, so. Uh, you know, you would probably be, or I don't know, maybe I guess technically Houston was last, you know, all likelihood you're going to finish higher in your division. So the crossover games will be a little bit more difficult. Um, and then I would just assume, you know, quarterback wise, and obviously the Colts fall into this boat too, but you know, you would think, you know, it's just a little bit of a healthier bill for the opposing quarterbacks that you're going to face based off what you've had this year. Uh, it's wild that the schedule's unfolded in that, you know, early in the year, if you just label it as healthy starting quarterbacks and, and maybe non-rookie throw in that as well, they faced a lot of those early in the year. You, you had Trevor Lawrence twice. You had Matthew Stafford. You had Lamar Jackson. You had Derek Carr. If you look at the back half of the season, there probably will not be a single quarterback that qualifies as a non-rookie healthy starter that you faced. Whether you go back to the Cleveland games and all the issues they had at quarterback within that game, you know, again, I, Baker to me was was banged up in that matchup. And then just look at the rest of them, whether it's Jake Browning this week or, you know, Mitchell Trubisky next week or, you know, Desmond Ritter. I, I guess he maybe qualifies as a starter. I mean, even C.J. Stroud is, is a rookie. Granted, he's not playing like that. So, yeah, I think it's fine to say, you know, the Colts have gotten the benefit of the doubt with their schedule, and that probably is not going to happen next year. Um, yeah, I, I think that's totally fine to say. But, you know, at the same time, look at Pittsburgh East of the last two weeks. They've had, you know, sitting there on the golden platter, Arizona at home and New England at home, and they haven't taken care of either of them. So, uh, you know, part of it is just because it's an on-paper opportunity doesn't mean it's a guarantee to be a win. Fan zone Kevin Bowen with us. KB, when you look at the Bengals, what scare? maybe none of it does, but let's say one does, what scares you most? Their weapons at wide receiver or Joe Mixon, and how much of that answer is influenced by the return of Grover Stewart? You know, Mixon had his best game from scrimmage on Monday. Uh, um, you know, they haven't ran it well, Cincinnati. But, you know, Mixon just has always struck me as a dude that I I, I just have a little fear in, in, in watching him. I, I think he's a pretty dynamic player. Um, so I do think the, the return of Stewart is huge. And um, – 
I'd probably put it more into this, Jimmy, and I've kind of been talking about this on the morning show this week. Of, I think it's a week where you want to commit. You know, last week, I would not have said this last Friday. Last week, it was commit more bodies to the run game. This week, to me, it's commit more bodies to the pass game. And so, you know, having Grover Stewart, that I would think would make Gus Bradley sleep a little better at night saying, okay, I don't need to kind of, you know, say, hey, you know, Nick Cross, cheat up. Or Julian Blackman at safety, cheat into the box. Or Rodney Thomas, we need you to play a little bit closer to the line of scrimmage. You know, theoretically, with Grover Stewart, you, you, you shouldn't need to do that. And therefore, you could have more guys in coverage. So, you know, it's not that Cincinnati is some vaunted rushing attack. It's not that they rank top five, top ten in rushing offense. Um, it's more that, hey, you need as many bodies to the secondary because if you're going to double Jamar Chase, I mean, that still is leaving you know, T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd in some one-on-one matchups. I actually thought their tight ends did a nice job on Monday, even though they aren't really household names. Um, so, yeah, I look at the return of Stewart not because it's a Derrick Henry-type matchup, more because you want you know, more bodies committed to what you're trying to do in coverage. Kevin, did you guys really revisit the mayonnaise coffee deal last week? We did. Um, I thought you would just be a team player and just organically do that yourself. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, okay. so I was There's a little a, Listen, mayonnaise and organic don't go in together in any way, shape, or form. Come on. Was it yeah, as bad it the second time around? By you. Boy, it's just one of those things when it starts to get chunky, Jake. Um, <laughs> it, it really. Oh wait, hold on a second. You didn't. Quickly. You didn't just talk about it. You actually consumed it again. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, well, man. Thanks guys for listening to the morning. Yeah, it shows where I was. I apologize. Well, That's on I me. knew about it. I didn't know yeah. about it. I don't know I'll what Jimmy's talking about. I knew about it. I didn't know about Hell, it. I'm the first one in here every day. It's true. Hey, oh, Whoa. The the new studio there. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it curdled quick. It got chunky quick. Andy, I think, had a bit of a uh, – he calls himself a gas bag. I thought we might need a gas mask to kind of get through the rest of the show after it. But he hung in there. Um, and, yeah, and we did it. And, honestly, Jake, in a game that was decided by ebbs and flows and missed extra points and everything, I'd like to think that we did our part in, uh, you know, maybe pushing the Colts over the edge. The you drink know? that answers the question of what would happen if you wanted an Irish car bomb for breakfast but without the alcohol. Uh, it is uh, – Listen, it was <laughs> horrific. Hundred times worse than I. No, I know, yeah, but the way bad. the way you have to drink it quick because it's going to curdle, right? Now, like the that, better, that element's there. Kevin, the better question yeah. is this: When you and I did it on the morning show, when it was hot, and for those that are unfamiliar, I, I think most know. But Will Levis of the Titans, you know, there was the whole reputation that he put mayonnaise in his coffee. It kind of became a gag. So, in speaking, gag is the key word here. When when there was the possibility that Levis was in discussion. One of the names out there for the Colts in the draft, we did the the mayonnaise in the coffee on the morning show. And Mark Dykton brought in a tub of mayonnaise that he had bought at Costco that was enough actually to feed uh, the entire like Decatur Township. And, and, and it expired in a month. Now, did you use that same tub or did you go out and get another fresher variation of this gelatinous hell? Yeah, no, Andy actually went out and did his part and uh, and got a tub. And, and the plop, it didn't have the same kind of acoustic, you know, uh, beautiful sound that probably re- reminiscent of that sphere in Vegas like it did for us, you know, back in April. Um, and I just still am dumbfounded by the story. I mean, again, Will Levis claims that he had his girlfriend or I don't know. I, I don't even know if that's the proper label. He had a girl over to his you know, a Kentucky apartment, house, whatever, 
and that they woke up and the next morning they couldn't have, there was no coffee creamer in said building. So they decided to go with mayo. And I, you know, I did a lot of desperate things to try to attract the opposite sex. I, I, I back in college, I, I cannot ever imagine thinking that mayo in a coffee is something that could lead to that woman then going home and telling her friends about it and her friends saying, you should give this man another chance. <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. You are right I mean, about that. The, I mean, I guess I guess just watch him play football and you probably get an indication of that. You know what? I actually thought Kevin Levis is a polarizing player. I only say this because he's in the AFC South, so the Colts theoretically could see him for a long time. I, I thought late in that game for a young player that is still within the first handful of, of starts in the NFL – I don't know that Levis blew me away per se, but he didn't look like a guy that felt like the moment was too big for him. Like he looked like he is a guy that can grow into being a guy that is going to hand the get the reins handed over to him from Tennessee. But your thoughts? Yeah, I mean he got very, very little help from his offensive line. You know, it's a very nondescript pass catching group outside of Hopkins. I mean, there are a few plays, and maybe I'm being overly critical there late, that I thought, man, he's really holding on to it. You know, could he have gotten rid of it? Could he survive, you know, to live maybe another down and not be kind of as, hey, I, I'm going to try and play a little hero ball. Um, now, I, I think people could look at it the other way and say, he's tough as hell. And, I mean, you, you watch him helicopter on that first third down, and then you watch Gardner Minshew slide out of bounds sort of the sticks, and those are two levels of, you know, kind of putting it on the line there. So, yeah, I mean, Levis had some moments, certainly Sunday that were nice, but I also thought he had some big-time rookie moments. And, again, credit the Colts for, I, I, I thought, putting him in those rookie moments. There's been times where the Colts have played mediocre to, you know, whatever, rookie QBs, and they haven't. I think kind of dictated to them. You know, I thought they did that to Bryce Young a month ago, and I thought they did that to Levis for the most part on Sunday as well. Is the division realistically – at play in your mind? I know it's all going to depend on Trevor Lawrence's health and they need the Jaguars to stumble once more, but is that a possibility you've allowed yourself to think is real? I probably haven't gone all the way there just yet. I mean, I've mentioned it. You know, it's, I mean, the door's cracked. I don't think it's very much. And, you know, part of it is, didn't Lawrence practice all week? I mean, it, it seems like his absence will not be long, if at all. Um, and if you look at their hey. schedule, I mean, yes, it, it's Cleveland and Baltimore. But then after that, I want to say it's pretty manageable the final three weeks. And they have the tiebreaker over Indy right. and Houston if all three of them would be tied. I think Christian Kirk is the bigger loss for them, Kevin. I, I Well, let me phrase that. Obviously, Lawrence would be. But the, the joy, if you're a Jags fan, of Trevor Lawrence's injury not looking season-ending was quickly offset by the fact that Christian Kirk's injury does appear to be, if not season-ending, deep into playoff level, and I think that's a major loss for them. Yeah, no, that is definitely a good point to bring up. Yeah, I mean, that is a big deal. Um, now, again, I, I do think there's depth in that wideout core. Obviously, I don't want to act like Christian Kirk. You know, is you know certainly he's better than other guys in that room. I thought the uh, – I'm forgetting his name. Washington, I think it was his last name. Who kind of filled in for Kirk. I actually thought he made a couple nice plays on Monday night. But, yeah, I mean, Kirk is a big loss, and obviously if it is D.J. Beathard – you know, for a week or two, you're going to have to, um, you know, certainly pepper Calvin Ridley and Zay Jones and Evan Ingram and some of those other guys there. But I think it's just a hair greedy, I guess, for me to go down that divisional path just yet. Of course, you know, one win on Sunday by the Colts and one loss by the Jags, and all of a sudden, I want to say Jacksonville is Baltimore next week. Then if they lose to Baltimore and the Colts beat the Steelers, boom, the Colts are in first place in the South. So 
uh, you know, it could very quickly change, but I don't know. I, I guess I'm just not ready to fully go there just yet. Kevin, Kevin Bowen, by the way, is our guest. Um, the last question I was going to ask, when you look, you know, Jacksonville's kind of up and out. You know, Buffalo, obviously, who knows what's going on there over the course of the season. Your opinion, best team in the AFC is who? Um, that's a good one. I Boy. Part of me thinks Mahomes in this offense is going to get it together at some point. Part of me doesn't even want to say that with Jimmy on the other line. I kind of like Miami. Uh, I know they haven't really beaten anybody, but. I still think they're just so potent. And I think Jalen Ramsey helps them out. And um, oh Boy, that's good. I, I don't know. Is it Baltimore? I, he's obviously very up in the air, considering how wishy-washy I am. Uh, I will say Miami will represent the AFC in the Super Bowl, if you're asking me today on December or whatever it is. I don't know why it is, but Baltimore to me is interesting because even in, over the last 20 years, 25 years, whatever, every time that Baltimore has had an elite-level team – there's just something about the brand of and the style of play that they use to get there where it never jumps into my forefront as the like a candidate as quote the best team in the AFC. Does that make sense? Yeah, and obviously those Baltimore teams, Jake, are just a little different than, you know, what Lamar gives them. Um so I do think and they have made some, you know, acquisitions to their past, I'm trying to forget. Is Mark Andrews done for the year? Was that? Yeah. You know that was a big loss for them. So I do think that can be taken into consideration. You know, it, it's weird. I do feel like there are kind of three or four teams on tier one of the AFC, but then when you talk about them, I think it's hard to kind of decide who is that team. Um, and obviously, just look at the standings right now. I mean, the number one seed is still. I'm pretty sure if Jacksonville would have won Monday night, which they easily could have, they would still be the one seed. In the AFC, and Jimmy, and totally understandably, this is no shot at Jimmy. Jimmy's asking me a question: If Jacksonville can win the division, like, I mean, that's how close all of these teams are. Even though I do feel like if you are going to ask quality of play over the course of the season, I do think the four division leaders right now, you know, Kansas City, Jacksonville, Baltimore, Miami, I do think they are on a tier. Cab, do the Pacers win tomorrow night? Uh, why? Yeah, sure. Why? I mean, hell, they've been underdogs in all these other games. Why not? I, I don't love the fact that the Lakers just. I mean, LeBron played 22 minutes last night. I mean, that's that's nothing. I mean, LeBron's probably played 22 minutes and you know how many playoff halves in his career? Just a half of a game. So, um, yeah, I will say, sure, why not? The Pacers haven't shot it well the last couple of nights. I think they're due to shoot it well, but I don't. If you are looking at it from a Pacers standpoint, I don't love that fact that. You know, again, LeBron did not play, and it's not like Anthony Davis did a whole lot. I mean, again, they didn't really need any of their guys to play. New um, Orleans missed their flight. I mean, what do you what do you want to do? You know, Pelicans missed their flight. Again. Pelicans missed their flight. I mean, that's that's what it was. It was a glorified open practice for the Lakers last night. God, that was unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, and LeBron had thirty and twenty two minutes. I mean, that was vintage. And I assume it'll be Obi topping on him. But yeah, I'll say the Pacers. I mean, that's another thing about exiting last night. They're like. The Pacers won by nine, and they were seven of thirty something from three. It's so not like if the Pacers Monday, win Boston the or Milwaukee, Kevin. If the Pacers win the in season tournament, even though he's dipped a little bit, you're still building the Ben Matherin statue, right? Well, the Halliburton statue is going to have to look a lot, lot bigger. Yeah, that's going to have to be a father <laughs> uh-huh. and son statue. 
Just, Outside of uh, Gamebridge Fieldhouse. Just wipe one of the zeros off the, the statue that you've already made, right? <laughs> yeah. Hopefully some weather could impact that and everybody will think it's the Halliburton one. He's Kevin Bowen. You hear him 7 to 10 a.m. on the wake-up call with KB and Andy. Follow his Colts coverage as well throughout the rest of the season, but with a big one against Cincinnati this weekend. KB, enjoy the weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. All right, guys. Have a great weekend.